Sometimes, in order to learn something, you must first unlearn something, right? This is a major process throughout history. Things that were once believed to be true. I mean, this was gospel truth for some people. For instance, the, the world is flat, right? This, isn't, this wasn't a new concept, all right? Uh, this was an idea. This was a, uh, if you would, a, a scientific belief held by the masses. The earth is flat. And if you, on, if you hop on Jack Sparrow's ship, and if you go long enough, you will fall off of the end of the world. And I guess float out in the outer space. I, I don't know what happens. I don't know what happens to all the water that runs off and how we just have this perpetual running of water. But anyway, this is what we believed. Right? It was once believed and learned that all of the universe revolved around earth. Can you get any more man-centered than that? Right? It is all about us. And yet, what, what do we learn through the, the betterments of science and through exploration is that we had to unlearn some facts in order to get the truth. I'm going to give you the end of the sermon. Right now, we can go home. This is the quickest sermon you've ever heard me preach. I'm convinced that there are many things that, quote-unquote, those who claim to follow Jesus need to unlearn in order to learn. And it has been perpetuated by guys who serve the church and by those who seemingly belong to it. Jesus, in his last week of his earthly ministry before he is going to be crucified, is trying to um, unlearn the learned. And this is belief by these Jews for thousands upon thousands of years. They believed certain things, and Jesus in his last week on this earth um, in this form doing this style of ministry, Jesus is going to come against that. If you can remember over the last several weeks, we have begun looking and exploring the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry before the cross. And he is a Jew, and, and thousands if not millions of Jews have just ascended upon the holy city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. This is a week-long celebration, and as Jesus enters the city, what does he do? He is cleaning out the misconceptions. He is cleaning out the counterfeit belief and understanding of, of the Old Testament and the counterfeit understanding of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah would be, do, be doing. They needed to unlearn many things in order to learn the proper things. Jesus comes not into the city to the Romans, no, he, he goes to the center, the, the center point of all of Judaism. Maybe the, the, the Washington, D.C. or the New York City or the L.A., the, the, the center point of, of all of customs, all of belief for these people for thousands upon thousands and thousands of years, 
they had learned wrong. They believed facts that were not true. They arrive upon the city, the place where the very presence of God was supposed to commune with men. And what does Jesus find there? He finds exploitation of the poor. He finds men getting rich. He finds the priests, the pastors getting more and more wealthy at the exploitation of the poor. In the place where the nations are to gather and to worship God. They find a yard sale. They find a flea market. They find 400 yards, 400 miles of 6880 through the Gentile area, the place of worship. And they're exchanging money on these poor people, making more money at the exchange rate of money at a high interest rate. And this ticks, to use a, a cleaner word, ticks Jesus off. I mean, he is filled with, with passion. He is filled with divine, rightful wrath. And he cleans out the temple, runs out the, the false converts, he runs out the money changer, he runs out all the animals, he cleans house on the temple mound. And we learned last week in chapter 21, we had some, uh, some technical difficulties, so you missed the best sermon ever, and it wasn't recorded on that chapter. You just have to ask God about it when you get there. But we learned last week in chapter 21, after a few days now, depending on what you view, I'm probably, this is happening on a Wednesday, a common belief that this is on the Tuesday, so Jesus is going to die on Friday. This is either Tuesday held by some or Wednesday. But Jesus has spent, after cleansing out the temple, he is spending time there preaching and teaching and healing and kids are worshiping him. Poor people are coming. The lame are now walking and the Gentiles can come in there and they can be taught, they can pray, they can worship God, which was its original intent and purpose. And so in doing so, this really gets into the pocketbook and the power of the chief priest. So they come to Jesus, they've been watching Jesus for years now, but now it's coming to a boiling point. And they begin to question Jesus on his authority. We saw that last week in chapter 21 as they come to you, Jesus, what are your credentials? What was your rabbi? What rabbi taught you, Jesus? How did you come up in the, the Jewish way of discipleship to be taught by a rabbi, to become a rabbi yourself? And, and Jesus begins to answer their questions by posing more questions, putting them into tight spots that would all place them as either being ignorant of the word of God or would force them to say that Jesus is the Messiah. I cannot stress to you the, the peak that we are climbing in the tension between Jesus and these chief priests, these scribes, these Pharisees. It is building and building and building and building. And in a matter of a few days, they're going to nail him to a cross. They're going to put him through a mockery trial, an illegal trial if you really study it. And they're going to kill that brother on a Friday afternoon. Today, we will look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. 
But let me close this out from chapter 21. Look at verse 46. So Jesus, in answering their questions in the debate, throws out two parables, which I covered last week. Sorry, I don't have time to go into it today, but man, it was awesome. It says this, And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So Jesus, in giving them their answers, or throwing out these parables of judgment upon them. He throws out two of them, verses 28 through 46 of chapter 21. And Jesus knows all things. I mean, he, he knows that these men are at their boiling point, but they're scared to say anything against this Jesus because he's the fan favorite. People are fans of Jesus. They're encouraged by what they're seeing. I mean, if you're lame and Jesus allows you to be able to walk again, you think highly of this guy named Jesus. So we see this, and yet, what does Jesus do? In chapter 21, excuse me, in chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, Jesus throws out another story of judgment, and he's going to have this conversation with them until chapter 23, he is debating them. And again, what's going to take us several weeks to get through was probably a morning for Jesus. It was one continuous argument from the Lord amongst these men, while all of the crowd, you just imagine that tennis match, taking place verbally between these Jesus and these scribes. So when we look at this kind of third parable of judgment and warning toward the Jewish leaders, um, I want you to know it, it is directed toward them, and yet there are many implications for us and a warning as well. So if we look at this, verses 1 and 2. Jesus tells them that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Throughout the New Testament, we kind of see this interchangeable, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That is all of the same kind of presence. It carries many different facets to it. Like right now, the kingdom of God is, is something happening right now. And if you truly are saved, then you are a part of it. And yet it is also something that is coming when Jesus comes again. It is a now, but not yet. It is all in one. It is a both and, okay? And so we're talking about the kingdom of God here. We're talking about all of the sphere of God's sovereignty and his authority, his control, the way that he is setting up kingdom. And, and we need to understand this in view of eternity. In eternity and eternal life is not something that you and I get at our earthly death, but it is something that you and I are currently living. We're to live in the kingdom of God now, and yet we'll live in its completeness then. Make sense? Good morning. So Jesus is equating this once again. He's trying to pick out earthly illustrations to help his listeners get it. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king. Who's the king? God. God is the king in this story who is throwing and giving a wedding feast for his son. Who is his son? The son is Jesus. Now, one of the things that we need to get here quickly, culturally, about a Jewish wedding, that it's a little bit different than ours. 
uh, a, a Jewish wedding, whether poor or from the king, was the highlight of Jewish life. A wedding uh, was not merely a one Saturday afternoon experience, but a wedding inside of Judaism was typically a week long. Think about you dads who have helped your uh, daughters and moms, helped your, your daughter to get married. I don't know about you, but that's going to be the most extravagant party Laura and I are ever going to throw as that girl leaves our house. Okay? Some of you will get that. <laughs> but she's gone after I've picked him out. Right? Here you go. You can have her. Take her. And all of her bills too. Okay? Get out. Celebrate! Right? I mean, this is it. I mean, think about this. People will spend, even in our culture, for one Saturday afternoon, 20s to 40s to 50 to millions of dollars on a wedding for an afternoon. Inside Judaism, whether you were poor or whether you were rich, it was a party for seven days. Six of them, the bride and groom, were not considered married. And on the seventh day, they finally said, you do, yep, you do, yep, yeah, okay, you guys go do what married people do. They can't consummate the marriage until the seventh day. So you've been partying for six and a half days. All right? This is why uh, Jesus, in the Gospel of John, his, his first miracle, right, was taking place at a wedding. And what was the conflict there? It was a cultural conflict because they had, given all, they had ran out of wine. Could you imagine how much wine it takes for seven days' worth of drinking? A lot, <laughs> okay? And midway through, or sometime through, they began to run out of wine, which was a major cultural faux pas. You did not want to do that, okay? It looked down upon you, upon your family. No one would ever forget it because, again, in Judaism, a wedding is, we, are, we get wedding invitations, right? Meaning we, not just me and Laura, and we're trying to figure out how we know these people, right? It's kind of like a graduation invitation. I don't even know who this person is, but they've invited me to their high school graduation. You know what's easy about that? Nope! Why would I go sit through three hours for someone who I do not know, right? But we're constantly, because we're invited to weddings, people are invited to weddings in our culture all the time, but you're trying to figure out, man, should I go to this? Do we really know them? All of these sorts of things. But inside of Judaism, when a wedding was happening, that's where you wanted to be. And think about royal weddings, how even in our world we'll stop to watch a wedding of a prince and a princess in a foreign country. It's not even our own. But the world will be consumed with a royal wedding. Who's our character? God, the king, who is the groom, the, the son is, is Jesus. So can you imagine when God is rolling out the red carpet, when he is throwing a party, a wedding party for his son, all royal weddings would be extravagant. It would be at the palace. They would have been at a historical moment and the life and moment of the entire kingdom. Our prince is getting married. The king would spare no cost for his son. The, the guests would reap the benefits of the God blessing, of the king blessing his son. 
and all of the guests will get to enjoy the, the spoils and, and the wine and the, the food and all of those things to their heart's content for seven days. Now let's see what continues to happen here in verses 3 uh, through 7. It says, And sent his son, excuse me, um, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have, have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So the king is throwing this extravagant party, this wedding, this celebration. And the invitations have gone out long before, okay? Um, now in our culture, we'll get these things called save the date invitation, which isn't the real invitation that comes later. But you get this picture and it says save the date. When it appears as though they have already been given the invitations, the word has gotten out that the, the son of the king is going to get married. But it's a day out there in the future. You've got to understand, this is before alarm clocks. This is before a good understanding of everybody having a calendar on their phone. Uh, this is before having a watch on your wrist. So they got these invitations to say, hey, out in, out in the distant future, our king, his son, is going to be married. So save the season. And when we come calling again, you need to know the wedding is on. So what happens? It becomes that time. The guest, look at what the Bible says, who were invited. They were already invited to the feast, but they would not come. So what does the king do? He, he again, he sends out invitations. It is now time for the actual experience. The king sends servants. Hey, it's time. The season is here. The, the day is here. Everything's ready. But they did not pay attention to the servants. It says, but they did not come. This is really remarkable about what is taking place here. What's understanding about those who are listening to this is that, again, inside of Jewish culture, these people would have stopped everything they were doing to go to a wedding. Not only because it was their custom, but it was also because it was their joy. And yet, he sends invitations then he sends servants, but they will not come. So what does the king, the benevolent king, do again? He sends servants again. Again, he sent other servants. Tell those who are invited, we've killed the calves. The food is ready. The mints are in the bowl. Right? Come and get it. Bring nothing. And he, he paints this picture again of the extravagance. Look at all that we've, we've killed. Everything is ready. All you have to do is show up. 
So he sends these servants again, and, and, and now he's telling them how great it is. But in verse 5, what do we learn? Verse 5, underline this, get this. But they paid no attention. They went off. One to his farm, another to his business. So we see here there were kind of two typical responses from the listeners. Some of them just went about their daily business. They've heard the king is throwing a wedding. They've been told, hey, it's starting. It's starting right now. The, the party is about to happen. But they were indifferent. They just went about their daily lives. Something was more important to them. And yet we also learn that there was a second group. Verse 6 while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And do you see these two different groups? There's one that they just keep going about their business, but then there is a, another group that is infuriated by the king's servants inviting them to the wedding again. And so they kill the king's Servants. So not only have they disrespected the king by not coming to the wedding, but now they are killing his people. They are killing his servants. They are killing his slaves. This is what's taking place inside of this story. Now, what, again, what is hard for us to understand inside of American culture is that this would have been ridiculous to those hearing it. I mean, they would have just been flabbergasted. I mean, have you ever heard somebody tell you a story that just seems too crazy to be true? Right? I mean, it would be equivalent of me telling you that at 4 o'clock this morning I walked outside and fed my, you know, rainbow-colored unicorn and gave my cat, wielding, my cat wielding a sword, you know, a belly rub. I mean, it would have been as ridiculous as this sort of thing. They're, they're hearing these sorts of stories, and they're sitting back, and they're thinking, no one inside of our culture would ever reject the king or his invitation. This is ridiculous. This is stupid. This is so dumb. No one would ever, ever, ever do this. This is crazy. This is ludicrous to think that anybody would, would neglect to attend the royal wedding, especially if you were invited by the king. See, not coming to the king's party was an act of rebellion. It was an act of treason. It was an act of disrespect toward the king. So just imagine for a moment that we're all Jewish listeners there in that room and we are just thinking man Jesus comes up with the craziest of stories so what happens in verse 7 well the Bible tells us that now the king the king was angry and the king sends his troops and destroys those murderers and and burned their city so after patiently sending out invitations and then sending a group of servants to tell them that it's time for the wedding. They reject that. He sends another group to tell them that it's time for the wedding. And what, is, what do they do? Some of them go about their business while other ones kill those very servants. So after a, a long time of being patient with these folks, he finally sends his army. 
this patient and benevolent king becomes angry and sends an army to kill those who rejected the king and his servants. As we've talked about many times over the last several weeks, this is exactly what God did. See, it was not just a, a, a comparison, right? But it was an actual uh, a foreshadowing of what was going to happen to these Jewish folks. God had been coming to them and coming to them and coming to them throughout all of the Old Testament, kept coming to them, coming to them. He would come in the form of himself or, or he would send earthly men to go and to preach to them and preach to them, repent, turn back to God, turn back to God. The Messiah is coming. The King's son is getting married. Prepare, prepare, prepare. Come, turn to him, turn to him. He would continue to send servant after servant after servant after serving, living all the way up to John the Baptist, to even Jesus himself. And then all the disciples are coming and coming and coming. They're preaching, repent, repent, turn to Jesus, turn to Jesus, cast your idols away, follow God. The wedding is coming. His kingdom is here. His son is getting married. Come to the party. Come to salvation. Be redeemed. And Jesus is telling them throughout this story that his God is the king and his godly, benevolent, patient father has had enough. And so what does God do in 70 AD? God sends a pagan-worshipping Roman army under the command of General Titus to Jerusalem. Over 1.1 million Jews lost their lives that day. They lost their lives for disobeying God, for rejecting his invitation, for not coming to the prince. It tells us in Jewish history that their bodies, many of them, were thrown over the very walls of the holy city. Josephus, a, a popular Jewish historian, um, says this, While the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priest alike, were massacred. He goes on to tell us that everything in the city was destroyed except for its towers and its western wall. And if you know anything about modern Jewish history, if you were to travel to Jerusalem, you know what's left there? The western wall. And that is it. This parable is a foreshadowing, it is a foretaste, it is a, an image of reality, a reality from heaven, but also a reality of the coming doom to those who are being disrespectful, dishonoring, not worshiping the God, rejecting this call, rejecting this invitation that is laid out before them as he has pleaded with them, not for a day and then shows up to burn down their house, but for thousands upon thousands upon thousands thousands of years just pleading with these people, his people, to come to him. But they refuse. So what does the king do? Verses 8 through 10. Then he said to his servants, 
The wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not weather. weather. I, I, I love the idea of getting this picture of God going about his business in spite of their rejection. He has a plan. What's the plan, folks? King's going to have a wedding. King's going to have a wedding. King is going to throw a party. King is going to celebrate and honor his obedient son, his rightful heir to his throne. And so what does the king do? He tells his servants then that go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding feast to as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with Yes, so the king has a mission. He has something that he is going to accomplish. He is going to have a wedding, folks, and he's going to do whatever it takes to fill up that wedding hall so that his son can be honored. So he sends his servants. Okay, don't go to the townspeople. Most of them are dead now anyway. But go to the interstates. Go to the most traveled of roads go to the crossroads go to where the poor are begging go to where the gentile dogs the the foreigners where they're heading through your city they don't know that i'm maybe even the king here i have no relationship with these folks they don't even know me they don't even know if i'm benevolent or if i'm kind or if i'm patient or any of those sorts of things but we're going to send out my servants to those places and invite them to come to the palace invite them to come to the wedding and what does the bible tell us it says they gathered up people and what kind of people good people and bad people now, what are we talking about good and bad here? We're talking about morality, okay? You can be good being moral without Jesus, okay? But some people are prone to be more bad. If you're here listening to my voice inside of this, this area of worship for us here this morning, um, then that probably means as, as far as in this season, um, you have either not been caught or you are living a pretty morally good life because... Bowling Green Police isn't here, or you're not sitting in jail, okay? So what happens here, this is this plethora, this, this diverse group of people. He is wanting those Jewish Pharisees, those, those chief priests and those scribes to hear that he, he sends out. His mission will be accomplished. So go to the nationals, go to the foreigners, go to the poor on the interstates and invite them to come. And guess what happened? They came. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll go to the party of a king. I mean, whether or not you agree with any of our presidents, if they invited you to come spend a few days with them at the White House, wouldn't you go? I mean, every time that I see the, the Super Bowl and they get to go visit with one of the presidents and an NFL team member or one of the team, Major League Baseball, any of those, and, and even from my perspective, when some of them decide not to go, I'm kind of like, I don't, I don't get that. Even if you don't agree with their policies, still the president. It's still an honor to be invited. And what happens? These people come. The local people, 
the citizens, the people have been invited and invited, 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 invited. They won't come. But go and meet a new person and say to them, hey, come to the party. It's lavish. The food is here. You get a free meal. You get a free celebration. Our king is throwing the most extravagant party. This is something that you will never, ever forget. And he's doing it for his son, to honor his son, to glorify his son. Why don't you come? And what happens? The Bible tells us, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. The wedding hall was filled with guests. See, their invitation and their response to it was not based on their merit. It was not based on if they had done right, right? Because it tells us that they were good people and bad people. No, the invitation and the call to come was simply based on the grace of the king. We see here already a picture of the the great commission found in the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus, as he is being ascended to the Father, tells his disciples to do what? To go and to make disciples of what? Of all nations. See, again, the Jewish people believed that when Messiah came and he set up his kingdom, that he would rid the kingdom of all nationals, that he would rid the kingdom of of all foreigners, that he would build a wall and make them pay for it or something. I don't know, but he would rid the kingdom of their land. Of all those nationals, all of those foreigners. And yet, what is the call of Jesus? He's already saying this. This is his last statements. This is his last will and tel- testament. It's the last things that he's going to say before he, he is crucified on Friday, leading up into this moment. And one of the things that he's t- telling them already is for his servants to go to the nations. To go to the nations. To make disciples of all nations. In the book of Hosea, chapter 2, God says to a group of people, he says, I will call those who are not my people, my people. God is telling them through Jesus, he is speaking into those Jewish leaders. He wants them to know that not only is, is this idea of who God is and the Messiah for Jews who will believe in him, but even more so, It is for the church. It is for the nations. It is for all tribes, every tongue, every language, that this is open to all of them to hear this. This would have been disgusting to the ears of those Pharisees. And yet we see this picture already that Jesus has always been not for one particular group, But he has always been for the nations. And the reason why he made the Jewish nation a nation was so that they could be a blessing to those people. Those people are to be a blessing back to the nations. They're to to fulfill what the Jews would not do. The church is to do that. What the Jews... refuse to do what they refuse to be a blessing to the nations they they refuse to to go to the the burmese apartments or to the songhai in africa 
They, they refuse to be a blessing. No, we want to hoard the blessings of God. We want to keep them to ourselves. We want to use God to allow us to be racist and to, to not be gracious and to not be merciful. We want to keep the cure of cancer to ourselves, keep our mouths closed and not share the blessings of God with anyone. And so what does God do? God replaces the nation of Israel, possibly for a time. We pray that there is revival amongst the Jews. But at least for a moment, a long moment, the church is is lifted to a place. They are invited into the celebration. And, And what are they to do? They are to continue to be going and making disciples, going, and making disciples, going, and making disciples, that we will not rest, brothers and sisters, that we will be kept up in the middle of the night because there is some person on some place who doesn't have the Bible translated into their language or who has never heard the name of Jesus and realizing that he is the only one. That's why we as a church, not just three of us, we as a church will embark on our first journey in the matter of about 15 days. Not to take the gospel to where people have been beaten up with it, or or not even beaten up, because I think we need to do some more beaten up with the gospel, but they have not been bombarded. It is not on the, the tip of every tongue or has the opportunity of resource, but sleeping in a in a tent for about eight days in the middle of nowhere. Do not be impressed with us, but be impressed with the gospel that will be shared. Be impressed with Jesus. Why are we doing that? When I've been traveling over the last several weeks and people have been asking me what's going on, I'm like, oh, well, things are going well for the church. We're preparing our first trip to Africa. And the first sorts of things I get questioned about is, am I scared of ISIS or lions? No, you know what I'm scared of? I'm scared of Muslims going to hell and spending all of eternity there. And he is called us. He has called you. I about threw up sitting in Spencer's the other day, not because of coffee, because that stuff will be served in heaven. But I was sitting next to a person pretending like I had my headphones listening to something, but I was just listening to them have a conversation. I was talking, it's like the Christian hangout for a lot of, a lot of people in our city. It's good. I, I love Justin and Shelley. They do a great business there to our community. But a lot of people do discipleship in there. And there was this lady having another conversation with another college student, age student. And they were kind of working through some spiritual gifts things. And, and she was talking. And the first thing that came out of this girl's mouth was, well, I just want you to know, I don't want to have anything to do with missions. Nothing to do with, God has not called me to missions. This is a lie. He has called you to missions. Every one of us, some to it's the cubicle, some it's the neighbor across the street, some it's the Burmese down the road, some it is the foreign lands, but God has called all of us. If you are a Christian, you better be passionate about missions or you are being passionately disobedient. God has called us. We are the servants that are to go and to do what? To invite. To invite to the kingdom. I won't go. No. Yeah, ask Leanne Crosby about I won't go to Africa. You been to Africa? Yeah, twice. I will not go. She's been twice. Okay? 
you got, you got to go. Like, we don't have a choice if we're the, under the authority of the king, okay? And again, I'm not saying that everybody needs to get on a plane and go to a foreign country, but for us to deny that and to deny our neighbor or the person that we work with or the college student that we sit next to, our friend that we go to high school with or go to elementary school with, if we are not sharing the gospel with them, I want you to know that we are being passionately disobedient and that is a scary, scary thing. Because what does God do when people who are claiming to know him are passionately disobedient? He sends an army to burn down their house. And he will burn down those people's lives. He will. It's judgment. And it is rightful judgment. It is the wrath of God. But I want you to know that is, that is not his, our inclinations as men a lot of times is to be quick to fight. That's not our God though. You got to get this beautiful picture of our God. Think of how benevolent he is. Think about how patient he is with these people, but also with us as well. Last passage here. But when the king came and looked at the guest, so king comes around, he's meeting people, shaking hands. He saw there was a man with no wedding garment. And he said, friend, how, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. He was speechless. So how does the king respond? The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, there's some debate on what is really happening here, but I don't know about you, but every time that I go to a wedding, my wife forces me to wear a suit that I only wear at weddings and when people die, all right? So if you see that me in that, or it's Easter, all right? So, but that is the idea here, is that this is an extravagant thing. It was, it was meant for the people to, maybe they were packing as foreigners, maybe they had nice clothes on them. Um, maybe they were able to go home and to change their clothes and then come back to the party. There is even a popular belief there that, that and we can kind of see some images this in history and maybe some images even in, in the Bible, um, where when these types of parties were thrown for the king, that the king would provide clothing for his guest. So he gives this man, he finds this man, and this guy isn't wearing his robe, all right? Or he's, he's wearing his street clothes. He's not dressed to his best. And let me tell you, this is not an excuse and some sort of formation theology that we need to create about how nice we need to dress up for church on Sunday morning. If you hear that, that's really bad theology. But anyway, they're to get ready for this party. And it appears as though this man had every opportunity to do that. Everyone else is wearing what the king expected except for this man. And, and again, the king comes to him and says, friend. He, he extends a, a patient, a loving gesture. He calls this man friend. Friend, uh, you know, how did you get in here not wearing a wedding garment? And how does he respond? The man has nothing to say. He gives the man an opportunity. Explain yourself. I mean, maybe he had, I don't know, maybe he spilled something on the way over. I, I have no idea. He could have explained himself. But what happens here is the man is silent. 
It appears as though this man could have worn something else, but he was unwilling. So even one of the poor people, when he, even one of the foreigners here, is, comes to the party, but is doing it on its own, doing it on his own. I'm going to be there, but I'm going to do it my way. Again, what does this do? It dishonors the king. The man lacks what is needed to be inside of the party. I think a prime example of this kind of character, and I don't know if this is who Jesus is exactly talking about here, but I think about Judas. Judas spends three years with Jesus, hangs out with Jesus, does all the ministry with Jesus. And yet he doesn't have on the wedding garment. See, these are people who are claiming to follow Jesus, yet have no real fruit. They have no discipleship. They have no mission. It, it, is, it is being on the pew or sitting in the pew and equating that to being in the kingdom. And Jesus is against that. Why? Because he, he tells them many are called, but few are chosen. All right? Quickly, this idea of what does it mean to be called according to this passage that Jesus is speaking, which is different than the way that Paul will talk about calling in Romans chapter 8. You need to get that. Not the same idea. The term calling here that Jesus is expressing is what is theology, uh, theologians call it the general call. This is the broadcasting of the gospel. We, as the servants, are to go about his mission of inviting everyone that we possibly can to the party, to the celebration. We invite everyone. We can't save them. We can't cause them to respond. But our responsibility is to cast that seed with everybody that we come in contact with. That we're so passionate about our king and about his son that, man, we want them to know you are invited to the party, both good and bad people. Morally good and morally bad. Terrible people. The worst of people. We're to tell them about Jesus and who we think the best of people are, that we tell them about Jesus. This is what is called the general call. It goes to everyone. It is for everyone. If you put out on Facebook, hey, all Facebook friends, come to my house tonight. It's a party. If you say Facebook friends, that's for everyone that is your Facebook friend. Those who show up, though, have responded to that invitation. I hope not everybody comes, <laughs> from my perspective, all right? But from an eternal perspective, those who respond with the right response are those whom God has chosen, which if we had time, we could paint that out from Ephesians chapter 1, from Colossians chapter 1, from Romans 8, 9. All of the gospel of John points to the idea that, that humanity all of humanity is heading toward hell. It is unable to save himself. The gospel 
needs to be preached to all of those people. God should save none of those people, but in his sovereign grace and mercy collides with the, the, the true will of those people, enabling them through his kindness and loves, and draws them, brings them, drags them, push-pull, brings them to himself in salvation. And it is some of the greatest news that you and I will ever hear today is that he is willing to do that. That he presents the gospel to all. And that enables us to, in the presenting of the gospel, to go in confidence. To know I cannot save any... I want you to know, if I had any belief that I could affect the growth of Mission Church or your life or the salvation of another person, I would go insane. I would. I am prone to insanity anyway. All right? I would go nuts thinking about, oh man, I, I wish I would have used this illustration a little bit better. Man, I wish I, in my four spiritual laws book, I skipped the third point. They're probably going to go to hell because I didn't paint it out just right. No, what do we learn? What do we learn inside of the gospel? That it is God who does this. Jesus, we even later tells his disciples, hey, don't, don't flip out here. It is not that you have chosen me, but what? I have chosen you. And this is a benevolent, gracious, patient thing. And our responsibility in it is to preach and teach the gospel, all of us. It is his responsibility to raise that dead life. So we can go to the Songhai, we can go to the Burmese, we can go to Dunbar over here that we've met, our friend. We, we can go to our neighbors across the street. We can talk to the, the person who is indifferent or antagonistic toward the gospel. And we can grieve for them and their lostness while simultaneously praying that God will save them, knowing it is all up to them. It is him. It is he who does it. So in conclusion... What do we get quickly? For us, what are some things? I've tried to put some application in the midst of all of this. But for us, the people of Mission Church, here are a few things that first, I want to give us a warning. And then second, I want to encourage our worship. So first warning, then I want to encourage our worship. We meet three different types of people who reject, peop uh, reject people in, excuse me, we meet Three types of people who reject Jesus. They reject the king. They reject the son. They reject the offer. They reject the will of the king. The first person, uh, which is the second person in here, but I'm gonna, I'll list it at the first because it's, it's, it doesn't really fit in our culture very much right now. And that's the hostile person. You're going to come in contact with people who are hostile towards Christianity especially in a foreign country, okay? We haven't really reached the climax. I think that this personal opinion, this is not thus at the Lord, but I think that there are some, some upward swings of motion toward that mentality here in the United States, but definitely in foreign countries when you are paying attention to the news and when our Christian brothers and sisters are getting their heads chopped off, I think that's pretty hostile toward the gospel. Those are the people inside the parable who want to kill the servants, who killed John the Baptist? Who killed Jesus? Who killed the 12 apostles? Who killed the apostle Paul? Who kills Stephen? Who kills many throughout church history? Why? Because they are hostile toward the gospel. 
The next two are the ones that we're going to spend more time on. The second one is the indifferent. They've been invited. They're the people early on that they've been invited multiple times, and yet, what does the Bible say? But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and the other to his business. What is Jesus alluding here in using those two illustrations? Man, these are people who are filled with excuses. Like you share the gospel with a person and they're like, well, I need to get some things worked out before I come to Jesus. Guess what happens? They don't get those things worked out. Because you can't work them out by yourself. You've got to work them out inside the person and work of Jesus. They're more concerned about their schedule their time, they're people filled with excuses. Man, we are people that come up with excuses for everything of why we can't be at something, why we couldn't get this done or, or this couldn't happen. And Jesus is speaking into this idea of people who have been invited to come to him and to commune with him, and yet they are filled with excuses. Let's paint this into our culture. We are a culture and live in a culture of commitment that can change at the last minute. I've agreed to do this. We've agreed to participate in this. We've, we've covenanted to do this. But something else came along, and it seemed a lot better and a lot more fun. And so we're not any longer going to do that, but we're going to do this. We do this with Ava all the time. She'll get invited to go do X, Y, Z. A few hours will pass and somebody else will call her and say, hey, can you want to go do this? It's like, hey, do you, do you want to come play um, you know, tic-tac-toe at my house? The next call that comes is, hey, do you want to go to Disney this afternoon? Okay, you get the difference? Ava Baker's going to play tic-tac-toe. Why? She made a commitment to that person. She made a relationship with that person. She gave them her word. I I'm coming to your house to play tic-tac-toe. Sorry, Disney, we'll have to wait. And yet that's the kind of culture. You know where our kids learn that? They learn it from adults who change their commitments at the last moment, who don't really take their covenant that serious. And these are the type of people that Jesus is talking about. This idea of looking at their own interests. They're more concerned with your job. Let me speak into this just for a second. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, if your job is making you too tired or you cannot be consistent involvement in the life of the church or a daily quiet time, I'm giving you a, a major piece of advice here and concern. You need to pray. And you need to consider a switching of jobs. It is that serious, okay? Now, again, if you're homebound, if you're laying up with cancer, all right, um, if, if you go on, 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 I understand people go on vacations. I mean, I, I, I get all, all of that stuff. So I'm not here, I'm talking about, though, uh, a major inconsistency that is caused by little Johnny's got a peewee baseball game. Guess what? He's not going to the majors, folks. All right? But little Johnny's got a baseball game, or we're tired. We need, a, another, we need a second Saturday so we can't gather. 
Because see, what we need to understand is and treat is every Lord's Day, every Sunday morning is a miniature version of the wedding. It's a miniature picture of the wedding. And every time little Johnny's got, you know, a runny nose, but it won't keep you from doing anything else, but it will keep you from being with the people of God, I want you to know that is, that is not the Holy Spirit whispering in your ear. It is sin, Satan, and death. It's, it's deception that is trying to convince you. I'll send you a, an email this week of a long list of real excuses that people have given pastors of why they can't attend church or a, a missional community or a small group. And it's ridiculous. People, I get that you're tired. I get it. I'm tired too. I'll tell you. I'm tired. But God is greater. God is more. He is our Sabbath rest. And anything that I want you to know, busyness is not godliness. And if we're being consumed with busyness, and our, our job, man, we got to get to the farm. I got to mow my grass. I got to work on my business. Got to make some money. Warning. As one commentator put it this week, don't let your occupation preoccupy your soul. Don't lose your life by making a living. So we have a hostile person. We have an indifferent person. The third person that we meet is someone I've labeled an imitation. These are the weeds leaving among the wheat. These are the wolves in sheep clothing. They're the whitewashed tombs. They are the pretenders. To echo Jesus, they, they're, they're this idea of, uh, he'll say this in one of the, the sermons he preaches. He says, do, do grapes grow on bushes? Do they? No, they, they grow in vines. And he'll say the question, he'll ask the question, or he'll make the statement. He said, that, do figs, do they grow on thistles? The answer is no, they, they grow on trees. Jesus is, is speaking into this idea that there are going to be people that are going to show up. They're going to show up to the gathering. They've been invited to come, which they should have been. But they're, they're imitators. They're posers. They're pretending to be a part. They're pretending Jesus is speaking much more about what's going on inside of this man than the outwards appearance of this man. He is saying this man needs to be robed in something greater. It is like going to a, a person, to a woman, and saying, I would love to marry you but not your body. And that's what it's like every time a person who claims to follow Jesus says they love Jesus but will have nothing to do with the church or inconsistent in the church is that you're saying, man, I love you, Jesus, but I don't love your body because what does Jesus say? He says, the church is my body. A few days ago, I was on a date day with my wife and we were going to, to yard sales and I'm standing inside of a, a lawn of a man here in our county. And every time somebody asks me what I do, I say, I'm, I'm a pastor. And usually that ends the conversation or 
it sparks up a conversation that usually means, as it happened in Lowe's two days before this, well, how many people go to your church? Was the immediate question. Love that one. After I, I told him, that gentleman in Lowe's, he goes, well, at least you're changing lives. And I'm like, oh, brother. So I'm standing at this yard sale with this gentleman. I tell him that I'm a pastor. He's probably in his 70s. He claims to be a follower of Jesus. And then he begins to ask me all sorts of like random questions, like was Jesus a virgin as he hung on the cross? And what Bible translation do I use because I'll only use the King James Version? And do I lower and raise my voice when I'm preaching and not just a monotone, because that's really bad. I said, I don't think anybody's ever accused me of being monotone. That's for sure. But as I was speaking to this gentleman, we were talking about the importance of church, and he goes, and my wife is standing right here, and she's like a chihuahua hanging behind me, barking at this guy. As I'm talking to this man, much up in years, claiming to be a follower of Jesus, and he says, you know what? He goes, I can go out to my lawn chair and connect with the God of the Scripture and of the Bible. I don't have any need for his church. I'm thinking in my mind, this man has chosen the wrong dude to say that to. Immediately, my heart breaks for this man. And graciously, but very forcefully, I looked at this gentleman as my wife is tag-teaming, and I said to this, I said, well, sir, who did Jesus come for? I said, he came for the church. I said, who did he die for? I said, he died for the church. I said, who did Jesus coming back for? I said, he, he's coming back for the church. And I said, sir, you'd be best to go out to that lawn chair and rip out the entire New Testament and throw it away. Because for you, sir, to say that you love Jesus but want nothing to do with this church is to tell me you do not love Jesus. We'll take your junk. <laughs> I mean, it, I want you to, We got in the car and we prayed for that old man. I could not... I, I, I did not stop thinking about that man. Later on that day, we prayed for him. Hours and hours and hours and hours later, we prayed for that old man. You know why? Because he needs to unlearn what he's learned. Because what he's learned is wrong. That man needs Jesus. And we'll sit here and we'll say, <laughs> that dude's ridiculous. But we'll live just like him. He needs Jesus. Jesus loves the church because against what we eventually know, that we are to worship Jesus. Why? Because at the culmination, man, wish I had like two more hours. I'm not going to get through all this. I'm sorry. This is about to be like a crash landing. This is terrible preaching. But God is sovereign, and he's going to do whatever he wants. So I can do so boldly and Boom! We're about to blow this thing. Okay, here's the deal. Because at the end of this thing, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be a wedding. There is going to be a wedding. We learn nothing of the bride inside of this passage. 
Did you notice? It was all about the daddy. It was all about the son. But as the the church begins to live on mission, and as God begins to continue to write out the New Testament through the gospel writers, culminating with the book of Revelation, why do we find out in Revelation chapter 19 that there's this beautiful bride called the church who has been clothed in the righteousness and the blood of Jesus. He has made her pure. He has made her holy. And and it is this that we are celebrating. It is this that those of us who have been with Jesus, we will join with every tribe, every tongue, every nation at the marriage supper of the Lamb to worship this King. So do you worship this King? Every time we take communion every Sunday, did you know that it is not just looking back toward the Passover, but it is looking forward as a foretaste of this marriage supper of the Lamb. Of that marriage supper. We look back, yes, to the cross and to the resurrection, but we look forward to this lasting, beautiful day when we will sit down with our brothers and sisters in Jesus and and we will look toward our groom, Jesus himself, and it will be done. It will be complete. His kingdom will be forevermore here at Mission. Man, we preach long, we preach hard, we call people to repentance. We're calling you, if you are hostile, to come to Jesus. If you are indifferent, to come to Jesus. If you are here, an imitator, do not hold on to your pride any longer, thinking that we will think less of you. We will think more of you, friend, if you were to stand up and to say, I have been a church pretender all of my life, but this is my day of reckoning. I want you to know we will not think less of you. We will embrace you even more because we know that it took the power of the Holy Spirit to enable you to even speak that confession. That's the desire of Mission Church. It's a place for really bad people. Really bad people. And we got a couple of good. But Jesus is for all. Pastor Justin is going to come lead us in a time of communion. He's going to pray for us, so tag, you're it. God is good.